You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. Welcome to this week's edition of Your Life is Worth Living, Reflections from the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 50 years, Archbishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television. Millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of hope and encouragement. On this week's broadcast, we will share a few of those reflections with you, and so we'd encourage you to sit back and relax and enjoy one of the greatest communicators of our time, the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Hello, Radio Maria family, and welcome to another edition of Your Life is Worth Living. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me to learn our faith together. Uh, we'll be sharing another catechism lesson with you a little bit later in the program, uh, because, uh, again, we are here to become holy as our Heavenly Father is holy. Uh, Jesus gave us that instruction in sacred scripture to become holy. And uh, what a better way to become holy but by learning the faith, and the faith the way Sheen taught it. Uh, he gave 50 lessons uh, in his complete catechism series. Uh, many people who would receive instruction from Bishop Sheen would uh, have to commit to about, uh, I think it was 26 hours of instruction. And so he didn't take it lightly. If you wanted to become Catholic under Bishop Sheen's watch, it took some effort. And so we've been sharing those lessons with you. And uh, Bishop Sheen recorded to vinyl back in 1965 these 50 lessons, and we've been sharing with them with you week after week. And so uh, we're on to lesson number 26, uh, and this lesson will be on baptism. Uh, but before we get to that catechism lesson, we thought we'd entertain you with, again, the audio portion from one of Bishop Sheen's television uh, shows. Uh, this program will be on character building. And uh, we've always uh, liked to, of course, when we look at young people, we say we need to build their character. And so uh, we all need our characters uh, affirmed and built up. And so uh, Bishop Shane will help us with that today. And so uh, let us uh, begin, as we always do, with uh, a short Hail Mary to begin our program. Please join me. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, Seed of Wisdom, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I was just thinking there, I don't think there's such thing as a short Hail Mary. I mean, so you can, of course, speed it up if you wish, but uh, I'm glad we took our time there and prayed it uh, reverently and um, of course, I know she's watching and she's listening, and so uh, let us all sit with her now and just enjoy this reflection by the Venerable Archbishop Sheen, entitled Character Building. Please enjoy. Friends, I heard a very interesting conversation the other day between 
a schoolteacher and the mother of a child. And the mother was saying to the schoolteacher, she said, now I know Reginald has been throwing inkwells out of the window and throwing spitballs at you, but under no consideration much you spank Reginald. It will give him a guilt complex. Just hit the boy in front of him. It will frighten him. <laughs> and in contrast to that, I read something from Lincoln. Lincoln said that a river always follows the line of least resistance. That is why it is crooked. The same is true of a man. Well, if you put both of these stories together, you already have some suggestion of what we may possibly talk about in this telecast, namely character. Books are written on character, and they all make character training very simple and easy. As a matter of fact, it is not quite as simple as it is presented in these books. Because man himself is very complex. Now, I shall have to draw a picture of a man, and this man, of course, stands for humanity. Um, I'm, I'm developing in my drawing, so this is going to be a more elaborate man than I have drawn before. Um, oh, I must tell you that I was asked, why is it you never draw a woman? Now, I can draw a woman. I'll show you how. I draw women. <laughs> oh, yes. It's a cyclone, Bob, a high wind. A human being is really very complex, made up of body, soul, flesh, spirit, Sensate and the love of pleasure, full of ideals also, capable of leading an exterior life, that is to say, directed to uh, the world and its pleasures, or it can lead an interior life. Either one of these is going to dominate. Now, it's easy to have the body dominate. All you have to do is to let go. It's very hard to have the spirit and the soul and ideals dominate. The character resides in this domination. Let us consider the domination of each. First of all, the domination of the body. The law that covers the domination of the carnal is what we might call the law of degeneration. We hear a great deal about evolution, and we're very much inclined to believe that evolution is automatic. As a matter of fact, it is not automatic. There is also operating in nature a law of degeneration by which we are pulled down, dragged down to what is worse. Things do not become better by the mere fact that they exist in time. For example, a fence does not get whiter in time. And if you do not exercise your muscles, they atrophy. A garden does not become a better garden just simply by leaving it to time. The weeds will grow as well as the flowers. If we do not exercise our mind, well, our mind eventually reaches a stage where about the only thing it can enjoy 
is a picture magazine or light stories. It loses all capacity for thought. Darwin once gave a very interesting example about this law of degeneration. He said, to picture a bird fancier bringing pigeons to a high degree of cultivation. Some of them are white, others black, and others spotted, and others striped. Put them all on an island. Leave them alone for 20 or 30 years. You go back, and you find that they are all a dirty slate blue. They have conformed to a type. The law of degeneration operated. Naturalists tell us that the mole once had eyes to see. But the mole chose to grovel in the ground, not to use God's sunlight. And nature, as if it were a judge seated in judgment, spoke to the mole and said, If you will not use the eyes that God have, has given you, then they shall be taken away. It's what we read in the, in the gospel. Take the talent away. How shall we escape if we neglect? In each and every one of us, there is a bias and a pull toward evil. And unless we resist it, it will get the better of us. When a man is falling from a, a skyscraper, he's alive when he passes the 15th floor. But the principle of death is in him. The man is poisoned, and an antidote is brought to him. It does not make very much difference whether he throws the antidote out of the window or just ignores it. As long as he does not take it and resist the poison, the principle of death operates. It's so evil. The kind of a law of gravitation can pull us down and down and down until we become, as some adults are, emotional children. One of the characteristic notes of a child is that there is a, a terrific tension between its needs and its satisfactions. That's why it cries so readily. And adults grow up that way. Coffee's not warm in the morning. Morning paper's not there. Secretary doesn't come in when you ring. <laughs> and a thousand things like that. Then there is a kind of a, uh, of a reversion to the child once again. I heard of a man who got on the Pennsylvania Railroad in Washington, and he went into the dining car and he ordered artichokes. There were no artichokes. He said, I'm the artichoke king of America. I spend $75,000 a year shipping artichokes on the Pennsylvania Railroad. And I come into the dining car and I cannot find a single artichoke. Is that gratitude? And as soon as the train got to Baltimore, the steward immediately telegraphed ahead to Wilmington, rush artichokes. They put artichokes on at Wilmington. They had them all ready to serve them at Philadelphia. He said, now I won't eat them. I'd rather be mad. The fact of the matter is that people who are always wanting their own will are unhappy. Man who is self-seeking eventually ends up by hating himself. 
That's one law, when we just let our body and our egotism and our selfish desires go without any resistance. Now, the other law is what we might call the law of self-perfection. This involves a certain amount of self-restraint. Just as soon as one speaks of self-restraint, uh, there is always one group that will say, yes, but you should not repress yourself. Now, if there is ever any nonsense in the world, it's that, because something is going to be repressed. If you repress evil, good comes up. If you repress good, evil comes up. If you repress the idea that you're going to rob a bank, then honesty comes up. Something's going to be repressed. It all, therefore, depends upon how we are going to tame that which is in us that is wrong and errant. And we can do it in three ways. We can do it by amputation. We can do it by mortification. And we can do it by limitation. Amputation refers to something that is all evil. Mortification refers to something that is good and evil. In other words, mixed. Limitation refers to that which is good. To give an example in the physical order, this would be like a cancer or any other malignant growth. This would be like a fever. Man has a fever, you don't cut off his head. But you cut out the malignant growth. This is like caviar. It's all good. <laughs> when is amputation to be used? Whenever there is a habit that is intrinsically evil. Let us take a habit. For example, uh, well, alcoholism. Alcoholism is, a, is an addiction in which a man becomes a slave to drink. It started with a free act. Then the free act became a habit. The habit became a reflex. And then much of the energy of his will went into the reflex action. The result was that he seemed to have little power left for decision. When one becomes an alcoholic, is it better, with God's grace, with the cooperation of the will of the alcoholic, to break it off gradually or to amputate it? When you're dealing with anything that is intrinsically evil, you amputate it. Cut it out. All at once. Hard? No, it's probably not as hard as a lingering indulgence. Suppose we were talking about wife beating. That's intrinsically evil. Should you break off that gradually and should you say, all right, I'll break it off gradually. But from Thursday, from two to three, I want to have the right to beat my wife. <laughs> Makes nonsense, doesn't it? Our blessed Lord said, 
If thy hand scandalizes thee, cut it off, cast it away. If thy foot scandalizes thee, cut it off and cast it away. If thy eye scandalizes thee, pluck it out and cast it away. To develop character, therefore, in the things that are evil, immediate withdrawal and a complete break. But when we refer, see, my angel has uh, washed off my board. I forgot to tell him. You know, an angel never has this problem anyway. That's the reason he washed it all off, because he has no body. He doesn't have to struggle with temptations like we do. It's... When you come to something that is a mixture of good and evil, then there's mortification. For example, is the eye good? Yes, the eye is very good, but should you look at a light that is too bright? No. Why not? Because it's bad for the eye. Is the ear good? Should you hear a sound that might break the eardrum? No. That would be bad. What then does one do? One limits the operation of this faculty to that which is good, and he cuts off what is evil. Now, applying that to the development of character, the eye should not be looking at everything, as it would not look at a light that's too bright. Hence, it will not do every kind of reading, because it will not want garbage inside of the brain. And furthermore, when the wrong kind of ideas get into the mind, they finally get down into subconsciousness and they come out and act. So one mortifies the eye from that which is evil. Same is true of the ear. Hearing is good. Gossip, backbiting, slander. The ear refuses to take these in. No character ever develops without a certain amount of mortification of that which is evil. It will hurt a bit, yes. If you... When a violinist tightens the string, if that string of the violin were conscious, it might shriek with pain. The violinist would say, My dear string, this is to give you a better tone. If a block of marble were conscious, it would probably protest when the chisel strikes it. But as Michelangelo said, there's a beautiful form inside of every block of marble, and all you have to do is just cut away that which is not good. That's mortification. Then there's finally limitation. Limitation refers to that which is good. For example, caviar. Now, would a person eat, for example, too much caviar? Well, no one would say, well, no, I will limit myself and just take that which is good for my health or for my enjoyment at the present time. Take a drink. 
drink of alcohol. There's nothing intrinsically evil about alcohol. But a man will say, it's good, but I do not want too much of it. Then I would be abusing that which is good. So I will limit myself. Maybe what he would do is say, well, I used to take five or six cocktails. Now I'll just take one, and the price of the others I'll send to Bishop Sheen for help his poor people in India. <laughs> Never know, they may do that. God love you if you do, too. Apropos of limitation. You know, we do have to impose hard things upon ourselves. Let me tell you something about when I first started teaching. After all, I did not start teaching here in America. I started teaching in England. Not every teacher is that kind of pupils. I tried it on a foreign nation before I tried it on my own fellow countrymen. And I remember when I was teaching dogmatic theology in a seminary in London, I saw very clearly that there were two things that I would have to limit myself on. The first was not to read notes. In other words, if I sat at my desk and kept reading my notes or reading out of books, I would never, never be a teacher. So I had to discipline myself, get away from notes. That is why so much teaching really is the communication of information on the notebook of a professor to the notebook of a student without passing through the mind of either. second thing that I saw that I had to do was to stand. As Horace said, see this may flurry, prius TB flandum. If you want me to weep, you must weep first. If you're going to communicate any truth with a certain amount of enthusiasm with fire, you can't sit. You have to stand. Believe me, it was hard to get away from my notes and to get up and stand before the students. And I was not very successful because I bumped into one of them in England about two years ago, and he said, no, about five years ago, I was teaching then in Washington. He said, what are you doing? I said, teaching. He said, I hope you're a better teacher now than you were when you taught us. <laughs> I wouldn't be on this program if I hadn't done those hard things in England. Now coming back to character, something is going to be repressed in each and every one of us. And we have to decide what it's going to be. If we were simple creatures, just flesh, had no spirit, and no infinite aspirations, we would never have to discipline ourselves. But if you want peace of soul and contentment and joy on the inside, the evil has to be dissipated and spent. Why do it? You do it because you love woman loves the young man and she will say, you like my hair this way? She wants to please him. You like me in red. Do you not think there are people who want to please God because they love you? That's the way real characters are made. If therefore we could crush this ever-craving lust for bliss, that kills all bliss, and learn to lose our lives 
our barren unit lives, to find again a thousand lives in those for whom we die, so are we men and women. In God's great universe, wherein naught lives for self. All are, from crown to footstool, spend themselves on us. The sun that only shines to light a world. The clouds whose glory is to die in showers. The fleeting streams who in their ocean graves flee the decay of stagnant self-content. The soil that yields its marrow to the flower. The flower that breathes a thousand velvet worms all spend themselves on others. Shall man then, whose twofold being is the mystic knot that links both earth to heaven, shall he forsooth, whose every breath is debt on debt, forget what God made him? Nay, rather let him prove himself creation's Lord by free will gift of that which they by nature's law must suffer. Take up his cross and follow Christ his Lord. Our sincere thanks to the Fulton J. Sheen Company, who has given us permission to share these broadcasts with you today. I invite you to make Bishop Sheen a part of your family audio and video collection. You can call them toll-free at 1-866-357-4336, or visit the official website for purchasing Catholic Family Videos and DVDs of Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen's recordings from the Catholic television series, Life is Worth Living. The web address is www.bishopsheen.com. You will find rare collections of Catholic family video recordings addressing a variety of topics such as morality, Mary the Mother of God, angels, Catholic Holy Days, and other faith-based subjects. So call toll-free today, 1-866-357-4336. Again, 1-866-357-4336. And on the web, www.bishopsheen.com. And on behalf of Bishop Sheen, God love you. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. 
Hello, Radio Maria family, and thank you for joining me for another edition of Your Life is Worth Living. I hope you enjoyed that reflection entitled Character Building. And uh, now we're going to return uh, to the Catechism lessons, and uh, this lesson today will be on baptism, and of course, uh, one of the great sacraments. And so, uh, again, looking forward to uh, picking up where we left off. Uh, we spent a little bit of time over Christmas. Uh, sharing some Advent uh, reflections and some of the shows that featured Christmas messages by Bishop Sheen. But uh, now we're back to, of course, what I like to call our regular Sunday school or uh, our catechism class. So uh, again, we are going to continue on our path to holiness. So uh, let us now enjoy uh, the wisdom of the Venerable Archbishop Sheen as he gives us the catechism lesson on baptism. Please enjoy. Peace be to you. In order to live a natural life, we have to be born to it. In order to live a supernatural or divine life, we must be born to it, and that is the sacrament of baptism, which is the subject of this lesson. Baptism is the sacrament that incorporates us into the mystical body of Christ, the Church, and is therefore called the door of the Church. There is just a faint parallel to be drawn between the church and the nation in this sense. Most of us did not wait until we were 21, then study the Constitution and the history of the United States, and decide to become American citizens. We were born out of the womb of America. The country was first. We were born into it as citizens. But in the strict sense, the church itself is first, Christ's mystical body. Baptism incorporates us into it. We are born out of the womb of the church. As we explained before, we do not become members of the church in somewhat the same way as a brick is added to brick in a house. We become incorporated to the church very much as cells expand from central cells. But you may ask, what difference does the pouring of a little water make? Well, as regards the water itself, it probably makes very little difference. That is to say, the water alone Take the water in a steam engine. You might ask, well, what difference does a little water make when you combine it with the mind and the spirit of an engineer that can drive a steam engine from one end of the country to the other? And so, too, when water is united with the spirit of God, it is capable of making us something that we are not namely partakers of his divine nature. Remember the beautiful description of baptism that is given in the Gospel of St. John. I shall read the third chapter, verse 1 down to 7. There was a man called Nicodemus, a Pharisee, 
and one of the rulers of the Jews who came to see Jesus by night. Master, he said to him, we know that thou hast come from God to teach us. No one, unless God were with him, could do the miracles which thou doest. Jesus answered him, Believe me when I tell you this, a man cannot see the kingdom of God without being born anew. Nicodemus asked him, How is it possible that a man should be born when he is already old? Can he enter into a womb a second time and so come to birth? Jesus answered, Believe me, no man can enter the kingdom of God unless birth comes to him from water and from the Holy Spirit. What is born by natural birth is a thing of nature. What is born by spiritual birth is a thing of the Spirit. Our Lord is here speaking of a second birth that is completed by two agencies, water and the Holy Spirit. Water of and by itself can exercise no spiritual influence, but it is a material sign of what is done and communicated invisibly and spiritually in the soul, thanks to the words of baptism, I baptize thee in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Water was rather a good sign for the sacrament of baptism. First of all, it signifies a washing, and baptism washes us from our sins. Furthermore, water is transparent to light. Signifies how light can be communicated, the light of faith, into the soul. The Greeks used to say that all life came from water. Their biology may have been wrong, but theologically they were rather sound, for all divine life really does begin with water. Notice that our blessed Lord said to Nicodemus, that unless he was born again of baptism in the Holy Spirit, he could not enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, it was impossible. We should not be surprised at this. After all, we cannot live a human life unless we're born of the flesh. And we cannot live a divine life unless we are born of God. Now, we're capable of that. We are, as some philosophers have said, kapox dei, we are capable of God. Nature is full of examples of such capacities. All seeds are of this nature. They are dead until favorable circumstances of soil quicken them into life. The egg of a bird has in it the capacity to become a bird like the parent, but it remains a dead thing and will corrupt if the parent forsakes it. There are many of the summer insects which are twice born, 
first of their insect parents, then of the sun. If the frost comes in place of the sun, they die. The caterpillar has already a life of its own, with which, no doubt, it is well content. But enclosed in its nature as a creeping thing, it has a capacity for becoming something higher and different. It may become a moth or a butterfly. But in most, the capacity is never developed. They die before they reach that end. Circumstances do not favor their development. These analogies show how common it is for capacities of life to lie dormant and how common the thing it is for a creature in one stage of its existence to have a capacity for passing into a higher stage. But, note this, a capacity which can be developed only by some agency outside of it and adapted to it. It is in this condition man is born of his human parents. He is born with a capacity for higher life than that which he lives as an animal in this world. There is in him a capacity for becoming something different and higher. That capacity lies dormant and dead until the Holy Spirit comes and quickens it. The influence has to come from without There must be the efficient touch of the Holy Spirit, the impartation of his life. The capacity to be a child of God is man's, but the development of this lies with God. We have to be quickened from without. We cannot give physical birth to ourselves, and we cannot give divine birth to ourselves. When the sacrament is received, what are some of the effects? One of the principal effects is that it remits original sin. That is to say, that sin of nature which we have inherited from Adam. If we are adults, who've never been baptized before, baptism remits not only original sin, but all of our personal sins. Imagine, therefore, a great sinner being baptized on his deathbed. Suppose he dies immediately after baptism. He has no sins to go before the judgment seat of God. And the reason is he has just been born. We are not, however, to presume that God will give us this grace for our deathbed. Baptism, therefore, is something that makes us pass out of one land or one kingdom to another. It is like the passage of the Jews over the Dead Sea, from the slavery of Egypt to the land of freedom. And baptism is a passage like that, where we are transmuted from the kingdom of earth to the kingdom of heaven. We no longer belong to the race of Adam. We belong to the race of the new Adam. We pass from one master to another. That is why in the ceremony of baptism, the one who was baptized is asked, Dost thou renounce Satan? 
are you willing to pass from the overlordship of Satan to the overlordship of Christ? We die, therefore, in, in baptism to our old nature. That is why in the early church, baptism was often given by immersion. St. Paul tells us that when we are baptized, we are buried with Christ. It is like our old Adam being crucified. And then, when we are baptized, which corresponds to the resurrection, we receive the newness of the life of Christ. There are therefore in the world really not a multiplicity of races and nations. There are two humanities. One is the humanity of Adam and the other is the humanity of Christ. One is the unregenerate humanity and the other is the reborn, spiritualized humanity. Those who are incorporated into the mystical body of Christ. Nothing else to be noted about baptism is this, that there is no such thing as being baptized into a certain sect. For example, no one has baptized a holy roller. No one is baptized into the four-square gospel. No one is baptized into the triangular church. St. Paul says, for all you who have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. We are baptized into Christ's body, which is the church. That is when there is only one body. That is why it is not necessary for us, if we are absolutely certain of the baptism of anyone outside of the church, to rebaptize that person. It makes no difference who baptized. It is only important that the one who baptized outside of the church have the necessity, or rather the intention, of doing what the church intends to do. But today, we cannot be sure that there are many who believe in the divinity of Christ, original sin, and therefore when they baptize have the intention of doing what the church intends. I know of one who baptizes his catechumens with a water lily. He stands them up before him and strikes each of them on the head with a lily and declares them baptized. It is a water lily, I should say, but it is hardly a valid baptism. But the point to be noted is we are all baptized into the one church, the one body of Christ. Whether we know it or not. Here is a difficulty that is worth considering There are many who do not have an opportunity to be baptized. How about them? It must be noted that there are three kinds of baptism. In addition to the baptism of water, there is also the baptism of desire and baptism of blood. Now, baptism of desire takes place when a person who has never received baptism 
loves God above all things and desires to be ardently united with him, has sorrow for sins, and is resolved to be baptized as soon as he can if he knows anything about baptism. There must indeed be many pagans and Buddhists, Confucianists, and all peoples who have had a desire according to the lights that they have received to be united with God and have followed his commandments, would willingly accept anything that God revealed to them. They have baptism of desire. And therefore they are incorporated in some way with the mystical body of Christ. In addition to that, there is baptism of blood. Suppose you were receiving instructions in a land where there was persecution. The soldiers of a dictator came to you and asked you if you intended to join the church. You answered in the affirmative. They would then sentence you to death. Rather than deny the faith that you had and the hope that you might be baptized, you submit to death. That is what is known as baptism by blood. Because here there is the supreme witness to Christ by blood, as there is a supreme love of Christ, as supreme as it can be in the natural order, in the part of those who have baptism of desire. I was once instructing a person who came to the subject of baptism, and she said, I have never been baptized. Suppose that I should die tonight. What would happen to me? Well, I said, you certainly desire, do you not, to receive baptism? She answered most ardently, I can hardly wait. She did die that night. She had baptism of desire. Another difficulty. How about children who, through no fault of their own, die without baptism? Are they punished and sent to hell? No, no, no. Unbaptized children are not sent to hell, nor are they punished. Their capacity for the supernatural order was never actualized. But they have all of the natural happiness that is possible for them. And that state we call limbo. Another effect of baptism is the infusion of certain virtues into the soul. These virtues are seven. Faith, hope, Charity, prudence, justice, temperance, fortitude. The first four, or rather the first three, faith, hope, and charity, relate us directly to God so that we believe in him, hope in him, and love him. The other virtues are concerned with the means or the steps by which we come to God. Namely, we are prudent, for example, about the use of this world in order to attain the kingdom of God, and so on for the other virtues. These virtues are infused into the soul. 
Now, in order to understand a virtue, the best way to think of it, probably, is in terms of a habit. There are two kinds of habits, acquired and infused. An acquired habit is playing tennis or playing a violin. An infused habit is swimming for a duck. Now, these virtues are infused into the soul. It is very much as if we woke up some morning and discovered that we could play musical instruments which before we never touched. Then we would have an infused habit or virtue in the natural order which was not our own. When we're baptized, the habit of faith is infused or the virtue of faith. That incidentally is why when children come to us in our parochial schools, small though they be, they are immediately receptive to all the teachings about God, our blessed Lord, and the Church. They already have the faith. We do not have to prove to them the existence of God. We merely have to give reasons and give developments and explanations of the faith that is already in them. A brief word now about particularly faith and hope and charity. Faith is not a wish to believe or a will to believe something, something contrary to reason. Faith is not living as if something were true. Faith is the acceptance of a truth on the authority of God revealing as manifested in the church and in scripture. God alone causes faith in the believer. And faith is not the acceptance of abstract ideas. It is so often said, oh, by faith you have to accept a number of dogmas. No. Faith is participation in the life of God. In faith, two persons meet. God and our selves. Our affirmation of faith does not come because we see a truth very clearly, but it comes from the vision of him who reveals that truth. And we know that he cannot deceive nor be deceived. Faith is not contrary to reason. Many will ask, how could you ever accept the faith? Did you not have to abandon reason? No, faith perfects reason. Faith is to reason very much like a telescope is to the eye. A telescope enables us to see new worlds and new stars that often by our own selves and unaided eyes we could not see. And so too, faith enables us to see truths which we could not see by our reason alone. Here is another fact. Human reason is stronger with faith than without it. Just as our senses are stronger with reason than without reason. Take a drunkard. He has lost his power of reason. Do his senses function well? 
Does he see well? Does he walk well? Does he talk well? Why do not his senses work well? Because God intended that they should be perfected by reason. So too, reason is to be perfected by faith. That too is often why a person who loses faith will discover that his reason does not exercise itself as well as it did before. It's very interesting to read the writings of those who once had faith and lost it. Their mind is wandering and confused. We have the same eyes at night as we have in the daytime, but we cannot see at night. The reason is we lack the additional light of the sun. And so let two people look out on a host. One sees bread, and the other with the eyes of faith sees our blessed Lord. It's because one has a light which the other has not. Therefore, we thank God for revealing to us this beautiful sacrament of baptism, which gives us this light which makes us his children. The ceremonies of the sacrament are beautiful. Assist some time at a baptism, and the priest will explain all of the ceremonies as they take place. They are beautiful, like putting on the white robe. Daddy spoke of it, saying that purgatory was a place where we go to wash our baptismal robes. Would to God that that robe of innocence that we receive in baptism, we could always keep clean before God and man. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith. Hello, Radio Maria family, and welcome once again to another edition of Your Life is Worth Living. I hope you enjoyed the catechism lesson on baptism, and we will continue uh, learning some more about the faith the next time we get together. And so until that time, may the good Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace. God love you, everyone.
have been listening to Your Life is Worth Living, hosted by Al Smith, here on Radio Maria Canada.